Well, as I mentioned, we're going to jump back into uh, Luke next week, uh, but for now, I thought it would be good for us to just ponder uh, this uh, beautiful text in Colossians chapter 1 uh, for a few moments uh, this morning. Uh, Christmas is a, a wonderful occasion, opportunity for us to think much on the person and work of Christ, on his humanity, his deity, his majesty, his meekness, his humiliation, his exaltation. And Paul does that in this marvelous text in very hymnic language, giving us a beautiful portrait of our Christ. Uh, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we look at it this morning. Father, we thank you for preserving uh, this portion of Holy Scripture. Uh, this is a text that uh, I'm sure many in this room have returned to again and again for their own edification. And we return to it again this morning. And we pray that you would make this word come alive in our hearts, uh, that it may result in gratitude and conformity to Jesus. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. I don't know if you know anyone like this, you can just mention a particular topic to them and immediately they begin talking about it and they, they won't uh, hush. Uh, perhaps you talk to a friend who loves to travel and they get back from Europe and you say, uh, you really enjoyed your trip to Europe, didn't you? And they begin to talk about the places they went, the food that they ate. Or you look to a, a newly engaged lady and you say, well, tell me about your fiancé. And she pulls out the pictures, and she begins telling you all about the accolades of this, this guy and he, where he went to school, and, you know, he only went to jail a few times, and, you know, whatever uh, his, his history is. Uh, she just can't stop talking about this particular guy. Kimberly was the same way uh, when, when we were engaged. At least that's how I remember it. Um, or maybe you, you receive a gift this morning, and you've already begun to talk about it and tell people about it. Um, uh, that uh, movie, A Christmas Story, that's uh, quite popular. Ralphie won't go, he won't stop talking about the Red Rider BB gun that, that he wants. As he says, an official Red Rider carbine action, 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. And he says it some 30 times uh, in the movie. Well, it's kind of like that with the Apostle Paul. Only Christ is his favorite subject. And you see it in this text. And he and he, and he, and he. He just won't stop talking about Christ with, with words of praise and adoration. Now, what is it that triggers this in Paul? I think it's what was just said in verses 13 and 14. Paul was speaking of a realm transfer, that Christians are those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what a Christian is. We are people who've been transferred we're in another realm. In sports today, we talk about the transfer portal. And guys are always looking to go to another team, a better team, a place where they could get more playing time. We have received the greatest transfer, that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And out of that, then Paul begins to just gush forth praise to Christ. And he doesn't really recover from this praise until the end of the letter. Now, contextually, if you don't know anything about the book of Colossians, it's my pleasure to say a few words about that, that this, this text fits within the overall thesis, I think, of Colossians, and it, which is a book that is all about the sufficiency of Christ, or to say it uh, in another way, that, that Christ is enough. Paul really wants the, the church to understand that, that his incarnation is enough to assure us of God's love. His death is enough to secure our salvation. His resurrection is enough to give us confidence in our resurrection. His power is enough to sustain us to the end. His return will be enough to bring a new creation. His grace is enough to satisfy our hearts this morning. 
We should tell it to our own hearts today, to one another and to the world, that Christ is sufficient. Now, this is a text about the supremacy of Christ, and the two are linked together, because you won't believe that Christ is enough if you don't believe that Christ is supreme. You see, it's the supremacy of Christ that assures you of the sufficiency of Christ. <laughs> because when you, when you believe what Paul says about Christ in this text, you have to believe he's enough. And it's such an encouraging word for us, whatever you might be dealing with today, if you're a struggling parent, that Christ is enough. Whether you are, you're wounded from criticism, Christ is enough. If you're in a spiritual valley, Christ is enough. If this Christmas has been particularly hard for you, this Christ who is supreme, who was born on Christmas morning, who is now seated at the Father's right hand, is enough. Now the Colossians needed to hear that, we need to hear that. The Colossians were dealing with what some call the Colossian heresy, which was, was basically what we term today as syncretism, which is the blending of, of beliefs. It's kind of like an old school mixtape, for those of you who can go back that far. I remember listening to the radio and you would, you would hit record when a song would come on, and you could have everything from Queen Latifah to Shania Twain on a mixtape. It, it was such a mixture of, 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 uh, of uh, genres and, and, and uh, songs and so on. Well, that's what was happening in Colossae. There was Jewish elements to this belief, as Paul talks about days and foods and shadows and substance, but also pagan elements that were being woven in. He talks about that in the letter, visionary experiences, the worship of angels, and these kinds of things. And so Paul is trying to clarify who Jesus is that Christ is enough, that you don't need the folk religions that were going around in Colossae. You don't need all of the, 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 the craziness, the mystical uh, no, uh, ideology that was being put forward by false teachers. And this is very important. This book is very important for our day because we live in a very pluralistic culture. And we need clarity on who Christ is and on what the gospel is. And Paul wants the, the church to continue walking in Christ. I think the, the main verse in Colossians is uh, chapter 2, 6, and 7, where he says, just as you received Christ, keep walking in him. Stick with Jesus. Don't get away from Jesus. That appears at the end of the text that was just read, that you would continue in the faith, stable, that you would not shift and, and, and dabble in the folk religion of Colossae, that you would not dabble in the, the mystics and, and all that they were commending, that you would believe that Jesus is enough. You don't need Jesus plus something else. You need Jesus. You need Jesus until you see Jesus, and you'll believe once and for all that he's enough. So I want you to, to look at this text with me in five parts. It's Jesus' CV, if you like, his resume. He speaks of Christ's clarity, Christ's creation, Christ's control, Christ's church, and Christ's cross. It's a condensed catalog of attributes. First of all, Christ's clarity. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. There's a lot here. Now, I think it's interesting that before Paul even gets to the false teaching, which he does in chapter 2, he first paints an accurate picture of who Jesus is. It wouldn't be wrong to start with the problems and start addressing them. But I think what he's doing here is instructive for us because once you get a good picture of who Jesus is, then you're able to detect false doctrines. 
uh, in other words, Christology, who Jesus is, what he came to do, is tied to every other aspect of theology. I liken it to like the top button, you know, sitting there with that button, my top one, I can't get around my neck this morning. Um, too, 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 too many weights. Uh, <laughs> but if you, if, you, if you get the top button wrong, every other button is wrong on your shirt. And you look foolish, right? Well, if you get Jesus wrong, every other thing is whack. And so he wants to paint a picture of who Christ is, and then all of the stuff they've been hearing, they can say, oh, I don't, that, that's crazy. And so the first thing he mentions here in this list is the fact that Jesus reveals who God is to us, that he is the image of the invisible God. This is a verse about the incarnation, which we think a lot about at Christmas. Christ came to show us what our God is like. He answers that question, what is God like? We look to Jesus. Paul says later here in the text that all the fullness of deity dwells in him. He perfectly reveals the nature of God. You remember when Philip came to Jesus and he says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. The perfect man, the perfect God. We just said it in the creed, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Jesus brings clarity. See, otherwise what we do is just invent a God in our own imagination. And that would be some crazy gods. But we don't believe in the God of our imagination. We believe in the God of revelation. That God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We just sing about it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with Please, as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, Christ's clarity. Secondly, Christ's creation. Latter part of verse 15 into verse 16 would have baffled both the Jews and the pagans in Colossae because Jews couldn't imagine Jesus as divine, therefore he isn't the one who created things. And pagans believe that many gods were responsible for the universe. But Paul says something different. First, he says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now that, that can trip you up if you, you don't pay attention to context and so on. Some translations render it uh, appropriately, I think, by saying he's first over all creation. Firstborn does not mean, and what we have to stay away from, is that Jesus was created. And that's, that goes all the way back to the ancient heretic Arius. The whole passage is supporting the fact that Jesus is pre-existent. Uh, in the very next verse, it says that he created everything. So if there is a created thing, he created, therefore he was not created. Further, this word firstborn has two primary meanings, and we have to use the context to understand it. It can uh, refer to having priority in regard to time, or being supreme in rank, which I think is the idea here, that Jesus is the first over all creation. We see that usage elsewhere in Psalm 89, uh, Pastor Walter preached from a few weeks ago, referring to David where it says in Psalm 89, verse 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings on earth. He's the highest, and that's the idea here, that Jesus is first over creation. And then for by him all things were created, everything, microscopic, cosmic, physical, spiritual, biological, geological, human, demonic, all of it was created by him. He doesn't get into a lot of detail, or any detail, actually, of why certain things were created. It's just a blanket statement that he created all of it. And his supremacy is seen in these little prepositions, by, through, and for. Think about that. Paul praises Christ through prepositions. It's not English. This is worship. 
right? He created by him. That is, Jesus is the origin or cause of creation. It was created through him in that he is the mediating agent through whom it actually came into being, which is important because there were those in Colossae believed that there were other agents responsible for creation. And then it was created for him, or literally can be translated toward him. It's all created toward him or for him. He is the goal of creation. Then his supremacy is seen in that little word all as well. All of it. His power is expressed, he says, in being over visible and invisible powers. He's sovereign over all of it. Now what difference does this make? Well, you go back to this context in Colossae, there were a lot of people who feared a lot of dark powers. They didn't know if their God was, was, was uh, sovereign over certain things in, in life. But when you understand who Jesus is, fear is gone. When you understand that this is our Christ, we don't have a puny Christ. We have a preeminent Christ. That's our Christ, and there we're, therefore we can be at ease and we can trust him. Thirdly, he mentions Christ's control, verse 17. When he says all of this, he says, is being sustained by Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They cohere in Christ. He's before all things. He's eternal. In him all things hold together. As one old writer put it, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. I like that. That's why I quoted it. (laughs) And again, back to ancient paganism, people suffered from anxiety because they didn't know if their God was sovereign over things or who was keeping things together or at any point could things just fly off into nothingness. And today the secularists espouse a view that try to explain how things are being held together devoid of God. Paul tells us how all things hold together and it's in him. Jesus Christ is sustaining the cosmos moment by moment. This doesn't mean there aren't hurricanes or tornadoes. There, was, uh, there were earthquakes big time in the Lycus Valley here where Colossae was. But why doesn't everything fly off into nothingness? It's because Jesus Christ holds all things together. Now this doesn't take away all of our pain or discouragement this morning to know that he holds all things together. But what it should do is remind us that Jesus Christ can keep us until the very end. That this, this Christ can sustain us through the hard times, through the difficult days, that Jesus saves us not only from death, but from despair. I love the old Gatsby hymn. Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head. My God, my portion, and my living bread. In him I live, upon him I cast my care. Then it says, he saves from death, destruction, and despair. You see, the Christ who sustains the cosmos can sustain us in our chaos. I don't know if you've said this before. I should have lost my mind by now. (laughs) And why isn't that? It's because he is enough. He's enough. Let's never doubt that he's enough. Never doubt that he is enough. Early on in our marriage, Kimberly made made dinner. And um, I'm going to apologize for this story in just a second. So just (laughs) be aware of that. I've told it before, and I know I should say something like that. But I'm going to dinner, and um, she'd made a spinach salad which is fine if there's something after the spinach salad. I'm looking in the crock pot, I'm looking in the microwave, I'm, I'm looking in the oven. I'm thinking, man, where, like the old Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? 
Uh, <laughs> she said, that's it. This is all we've got. It's like, and as she will tell you, there was a lot of stuff in the salad. I was looking for protein. There, I didn't find protein. And I was saying, this is not enough. Th this is not enough. I mean, we're going to need counseling. Uh, because this, we should never say that about Christ, that he is not enough. And I should never say it about my wife's dinner because it was a great meal and I should not have said that and had those thoughts in my head because I need a lot of salad like most guys. So anyway, it's Christ's control here that Jesus is enough. He's sustaining the cosmos. He sustains us in our chaos. Fourthly, Christ's church. He goes from the cosmic Christ now to the the Christ who is Lord over the church, Lord over redemption. So you might say that he goes from Lord of creation to Lord of redemption. As he says here that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. To be head, of course, means that he's Lord over it. But the head, body, there's, there's a lot to this image, right? It, it describes the mysterious union between Christ and his church. Like a head and a body. It, it speaks of the living uh, organism that is the church. That we're not an organization, as it were, but we're a body uh, that is alive. That the church carries out Christ's purposes on the earth as we're attached to him. So it's a beautiful metaphor we see elsewhere in Scripture. And it's a reminder this morning that it is a glorious thing to be part of the church. Only of the church is it said that Jesus is the head of, right? He is Lord of creation. He is head of the church. And so what a privilege it is to think about that. And then verse 18 tells us why he's head of the church, which can be translated because he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What gives Jesus the right to be the head of the church? He's the firstborn from the dead. And here I think the idea is of precedence in time, that Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You might think of it here as the idea of a trailblazer. What Jesus did, he blazed the trail through death so that others could follow him in resurrection power. It's similar to uh, Neil Armstrong, right, when he says, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I went to the moon, others will go to the moon. And in a much more significant way, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and because we are united to him, we also will pass through death into resurrection glory. Jesus can take us by the hand as we lie on our deathbed and say, I've been through death, and I've seen the other side, and where I am, I will take you to be with me also. He is the resurrected Lord over the church. Is there any way through death? Yes, he says. What is true for the head is true for the body. And by the Spirit, right now, this morning, if you're in Christ, you share in the risen life of Christ. You've you're been raised with Him, and you will share in it fully as you are raised physically one day. You see, Christmas is good news because Easter really happened. It really happened. So think about these verses together. Verse 15. Christ can deal with your doubt. If you doubt that God exists, He came to show you. Verse 16 and 17, Christ can deal with your despair. He sustains all things. And now in verse 18, Christ can deal with your death because he rose from the dead. He really is enough. And that is why Paul says he must be preeminent. He must have first place. And that takes us down. Now let's jump to verses 19 to 23, finally Christ's cross. 
you can notice the flow of this text, how we go from the heights of the pre-existent Christ who created all things, who sustains the cosmos, and we go all the way down to the cross. And his glory is also seen there, isn't it? There's another statement about his deity in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This was very important then, it's very important now, as many were arguing that Christ was great, he was powerful, but he wasn't divine. But Paul says, no, he's fully divine. And church history has been littered with debates throughout its history over the nature of Jesus. In fact, the Nicene Creed that we just read previously centered around a debate as Arius was arguing that Jesus was of similar substance to the Father, but not the same, and Athanasius won the day. And it was really a debate over one letter, homoousios, same substance, or homoiousios, like substance. Now, how many of you know one letter can make a big difference? Let me give you an example. This past week, I was doing a wedding. Before the wedding, I go get on the treadmill. I was doing some exercising and trying to button the top button. And uh, Kimberly texts me, and she says, Shauna's bringing lunch. I'm like, great. I don't have to eat. So I go home, shower, come over for the wedding. And I said, where's lunch? She said, there's no lunch. And I said, you said there was lunch. <laughs> she said, no. I said, Shauna's bringing punch. And I said, but you wrote lunch. Now, how many of you know there's a big difference between punch and lunch, especially after you've worked out? I just realized now two stories about food, and uh, I'm going to be paying for cheese. There's no guilt on either part, her or Shauna. Just want you to know. I assured them of that. But, but here, there was a debate about is Jesus fully divine or is he not? And that's very important, isn't it? And it's very important here because Jesus has to be fully divine in order to reconcile us to God. He is the God-man, and he's the only one in human history to occupy that category as the God-man. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and what did he do? Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, time's getting away, but I want you to notice two things here. There's a cosmic reconciliation and personal reconciliation. Paul starts with cosmic in verse 20. What happened at the cross? Jesus was reconciling all things to himself. All things in creation. This is very similar to Romans 8, 20 to 23, that creation is groaning for redemption. It is in futility. It needs to be restored. And one day it will be restored. And one of the things that Jesus was doing at the cross was ensuring that that was going to happen. He will restore it all into perfect glory. As we sing this time of year, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And where is it found? Everywhere. And what will he restore? Everything. You see, even this cosmic work happened through the bloody cross of Jesus. It looked like just a Jew hanging on a cross, a rabbi on a cross. But what Jesus was doing there had cosmic significance. And one day we'll see it. We'll see what that produced. And then there's personal reconciliation. Notice 21 to 23. The shift here. Notice first two words. And you. Beautiful words. Paul's been saying, and he, and he, and he, and he. And now he gets to 21. And you. That this Christ has come for us. 
and you, who were once, this is who we were, alienated, unhostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We may not like this description of ourselves, but this is the accurate description of ourselves. We were alienated from God, hostile in mind. We, we do not appreciate the good news unless we believe the bad news, right? That we were doing evil deeds. But notice what Jesus did. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is our position now. And you're really only in one of two verses, either you're in verse 21 or you're in verse 22. 22 is glorious. This is justification language. We are holy before him. How could we be blameless? Because Christ was blameless. How could we be holy? Because Christ was holy. How could we be above reproach? Because he was above reproach. And by faith in him, his righteousness is applied to us. And this is our standing this morning. This is the good news of the gospel, what Jesus has done. And then, not only is there this reconciliation, but there's future glorification in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And you'll notice here that saving faith is a persevering faith. Right? Or it's not saving faith, it's persevering faith. Stable and steadfast, that's the same idea again. That you're not waffling back and forth. Maybe Jesus was the son of God, maybe he wasn't. Maybe it's, it's salvation by grace through faith in, in Christ, or maybe it's works-based righteousness. No, no. We continue stable and steadfast in him, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And that word hope is, is, is triggering what Paul said previously in the text, the glory that is to come, that the gospel brings us future hope, future glory, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He is saying to the Colossians, what I preach to you is what I'm preaching everywhere else around the world. And what Paul was preaching everywhere around the world and preaching to the Colossians, we're preaching this morning, and we want to preach all around the world because the gospel has global significance. That we don't believe in a tribal savior who is just the Lord of one people group, but he is the Lord of the nations. And then we're going to, have, we have this picture right in Revelation of every tribe, people, language, and nation worshiping this Christ. And Paul says, what I preach to you, that's what I'm preaching everywhere else. Don't go looking for anyone else or anything else. Don't dabble in the crazy, whack religions of Colossae. Stick with Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus until you see him face to face. And then you'll be glad that you did. So church, let this vision of Christ's Encourage your soul this morning. We've received the greatest thing we could receive in receiving the gift of Jesus Christ and the grace of salvation. And one day we will see the preeminent one who is Lord over creation, Lord over redemption, and he deserves first place in everything. First place in our lives, first place in our family, first place in our church, first place in everything. Praise be to God for his word. I could probably go for another hour or so on this text, but we'll, 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 we'll stop it there. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the kindness that we have received in Jesus Christ and the glory that we see in Jesus Christ. And we will return to this text and many other texts so many times in our lives until we see Jesus face to face and when our, our faith ends in sight. And uh, 
I thank you for, for those who are here this morning, and I pray you would encourage our souls in the good news. Even this week, I pray you would give us wonderful times with you in your word as we are, we're renewed from, from glory to glory. And now, Lord Jesus, I pray you would receive our praise as your people who have been redeemed, as your people who have received this grace, who stand before you above reproach and holy because you're our Savior, and we give you praise. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.